although the nuclear family has defined American life for almost like 100 years, yeah. it's still a relatively new concept. Before that, people lived surrounded by their friends and family. And we saw kind of a resurgence of that through the pandemic, where families would create these pandemic pods and organize nanny shares and kind of work together as a unit to get by. But this takes it a step further and a foot deeper. So yeah. I'm, I'm glad that people are stretching beyond the traditional definition of what makes someone family. Because within communal living, you get to establish a chosen family. And that can be based on lifestyle or worldview, like veganism or spiritualism or something else that you decide that this is what you want to be surrounded by. Yeah. So we're told it takes a village, but how do you get one if you're not born into one? Welcome to the Rich and Regular Podcast presented by Success, where we explore life at the intersection of money. I'm Julian. And I'm Kirsten. And today we're talking about communal living or communes. Communes. I thought, yes. the, I thought the term was mommunes. Well, yes, we're going to get to the mommune version mom-unes. of it. But <laughs> I am personally very excited about this subject because you know how you have those big dreams for your life that you're kind of scared to think about because they seem too far out there? No. No. (laughs) Well, communal living is mine. I mean, maybe I've just maybe I've watched too many episodes of Golden Girls, which are the OG communal livers. But I feel like that is the way that I am meant to grow old. Okay. But in practice, my mind likes to convince me that it's not realistic or possible for me because it's not something that I see people or hear people planning for, particularly if you already have a nuclear family structure. So I was very excited because one of our listeners, shout out to Evie, maybe it's Evie, but shout out to you. You know who you are. <laughs> we posted a story that the New York Times wrote about momunes, which is a group of moms that live together. We posted it on Instagram and she wrote and said, you guys should do a full episode on this. Yeah. So that's what we're doing. Yeah. My mind is all over the place. So which 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 golden girl are you now? Because you're since this is the big dream. <laughs> I think I'm Blanche. Okay. I kind of saw that coming. I was like, let's get this one right. Because I I need to know if I'm like married to like a rose or the the, the grandmother. Like, I don't know how you envision yourself. But but no, this is an interesting uh, topic for me as well. Not because I envision being a golden guy, but... (laughs) I remember a few years ago, there was this article that I saw in Vice, which, by the way, I guess RIP, like, I don't even know what to say, bankruptcy, like, I don't know what's happening with Vice. But tough times for everyone, especially media companies right now. But Vice is a media platform, and I just checked the article, it's still out there. But it was about a group of six Canadians who were in the Toronto area. And if you know anything about Toronto, not only is it just beautiful and amazingly diverse, but it's also incredibly expensive to buy a home there. And their way around that was to pool resources and say, you know what? We can't afford that million dollar home, but we really want to live in this neighborhood for a variety of reasons. I don't remember all the details, but it was just like a interesting article. And it wasn't like, you know, no shade to CNBC. It wasn't like a, here's how they did it article. It was more like, this is a thing it's happening. Yeah. And it's like, you know, very interesting. And there's little to no precedent or data to talk about this. Um, but here's what we've learned and here's how they funded it. And here's their rationale. And here's what they're not like. They're all like 
highly educated. They're all working. They all had excellent credit, all of these things, but they really just decided to break this, the, the rules and say, hey, we're going to do this and try to find a banker or a lender that was willing to uh, provide them the loan. And then they worked with the agreement. Like they literally just created almost like a new market. And so I was really, really interested in it for a couple of reasons. One, because we were just like in the early stages of like writing about money and, and, and really communicating what we learned. And so the other thing was that like, it just seemed to me like an obvious and natural thing to do. And so rarely do you find situations, or at least for me, where someone just comes across something and they break the rules because it just makes sense. Right. And then you realize like, well, yeah, like the system just doesn't really work in these people's favor. But what I also thought was interesting was that there are so many, to your point about the Golden Girls, there are so many of these media portrayals of how normal this is. Right. Yet in real life, none of us exactly. do it. Right. So we talk about the Golden Girls. We watch it. We watch Full House. We watch uh, Three's Company mm-hmm. and Living Single. But we never quite ask, like, what well, exactly? How do they right. how do they make that work? Right? <laughs> right. We just sort of assume, well, that's normal. Cool for them. But like, no, you can do that. It apparently is not easy, especially not in Toronto. But all of that to say, like, I feel like it's important. I feel like it's something that a lot of people should consider. And that's part of the reason why we're diving into it a little bit today. Yeah. And beyond my personal wishes for my own life, you know, we talked about Airbnbs on the last episodes and the challenges that they add to an already complicated housing crisis. But we really stopped short of discussing the need for innovative solutions to solve for the housing crisis. And I actually think this could be one of them. Long story short, it's harder than ever to find somewhere to live within a reasonable budget. And there have been countless articles written about the housing crisis. A lot of the recent debate has been focused on more structural solutions, things like rezoning or building new public housing, instead of focusing on the individual solutions that we can implement as just the general public. And while it is very true that every American city has a housing problem, newer research has also found that every city's path to addressing it is unique to that city. The solution for Dallas may be more affordable multi-housing, multi-family housing, but the solution for Vegas might be something different, like single-family homes because they're less price sensitive. You know, it's just different for every city. So we have this very national problem, but it requires a bunch of local solutions to fix it. And that in and of itself stops the larger conversation from happening. We can't even get to the ideological ideas around housing. Yeah. And I think to a a certain extent, you're also just working with what you got, right? So like the types of housing and different models that you create, like oftentimes you really want to make the most affordable, the most sustainable option. So you want to look at like, what 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 do you already have, right? Do you have a bunch of abandoned factories? Right. Well, then we're going to use that to try to figure out what we can do to solve for another problem. Like no different from anything else. Like what do you have and how can you use that to solve for the problem that we have? But to be clear, the idea of fixing this like is, is a stretch, right? Like it's right. going to take multiple lifetimes to actually try to fix it. And even if we bring the cost of housing down, like if you remove that from the table, it still doesn't solve some of the other limitations of traditional housing models, which includes the high barriers of even obtaining a mortgage, which is still primarily structured as a traditional 30-year amortized loan. And it still doesn't solve for the variable expenses of homeownership, like property taxes and maintenance fees that are required to keep that home up. So when we talk about communal living, this idea of sort of 
cohabitation and multiple families and again, of no sort of limits, right? Like we didn't say, well, when two to three or three to five, it's just like communal living, it's up to you. We're really talking about an even more sort of hyper local and unique and customizable solution. And one of the common misperceptions is that communal living is basically another version of having a roommate. It's like, well, what's, you know, isn't it just the same, right? And I, I think it's a little different. Or some people may say it's like uh, another version or flavor of house hacking where you live with someone else and one person is sort of subsidizing the cost of the entire home or the mortgage uh, while the other person sort of benefits from the appreciation and whatever supplemental cash flow that comes from it. And I think that's also the wrong way of looking at it. Right. I think when we're talking about communal living, it's basically like a micro society or like a micro community or what do you call those things? Like a snow globe. It's like you creating your own yeah. little world or ecosystem it is. with it's a few other people. Correct. It's like world building. It's a living arrangement where groups of individuals or families living alongside one another and share household responsibilities like cooking, cleaning, and all of the decisions as a group. It's self-managed and they go by several names, right? It's like we have got like co-ops or co-living, co-housing. I even saw the term intentional communities pop up a few times. They're also varied in terms of structure. Again, there are some that are like five-story brownstones. Some are top floors of old office buildings and others are completely created from the ground up for this particular purpose. The thing they have in common is that they're all built around common and shared spaces and they operate in a way that keeps the community connected. I think that's the thing, like hence the word sort of commune, community. It's like the purest or the essence of community. And I'm all for it, like right off the bat. Yeah, I think it's important. What you just said is important for a number of reasons. One, saying all of the names that this type of living arrangement goes by. So if you're like me and you listen to this and want to do your own research, know that you may not find something under like communes in my area, but you might find intentional communities in my area. So search for different things, but also just kind of breaking our brain from the framework that we're used to, which is a roommate situation or a house hacking situation where you're essentially a landlord and leasing out your space. It's really important to kind of leave those models aside to approach this topic with a really open mind because it's very different than that. And it's still so funny to me to kind of apply these words to the concept because I don't think the concept of a shared living arrangement is new, particularly in non-white communities. I have family members who have been doing this for years and helped each other raise kids. They take care of pets. They split all of the bills along the way and they make decisions as a unit. But I never thought of it as communal because they're family. And that's just kind of what family does to me. I think you may have thought of it as communal, but the term commune, it it has a a connotation to it. And I'm not not exactly sure as I'm, I'm kind of spitballing here, but like, it, it almost reminds me, <laughs> I don't know why I think of like hostel, yeah. like in, in Europe where yeah. people are just like sort of backpacking, like a dorm or something mm-hmm. like that. And I think what we're talking about is something that's much more organized and formal and intimate. Yeah. And I think calling it communal or a commune actually stretches my imagination a bit to think beyond my family and explore this possibility of someone else playing a huge role in my families, for lack of a better word, yeah. in, my, in my life. And it's actually a return to the way that things used to be. Because when people talk about the village that it takes, this is what they mean. Yeah. Although the nuclear family has defined American life for almost like 100 years, yeah. it's still a relatively new concept. 
before that, people lived surrounded by their friends and family. And we saw kind of a resurgence of that through the pandemic, where families would create these pandemic pods and organize nanny shares and kind of work together as a unit to get by. But this takes it a step further and a foot deeper. So yeah. I'm I'm glad that people are stretching beyond the traditional definition of what makes someone family. Because within communal living, you get to establish a chosen family. And that can be based on lifestyle or worldview, like veganism or spiritualism or something else that you decide that this is what you want to be surrounded by. Yeah. So we're told it takes a village, but how do you get one if you're not born into one? And I can't help but to think about my mom. My mom is an immigrant from the Caribbean. Uh, And she came here, what, in the 1960s or Mm -hmm. something like that? She's now older, she's single, and she's got a handful of friends, you know, just like anyone else that gets older that have since passed. These were like her pod people. And now she's just kind of, you know, out here by herself. She has us, obviously, and she's not far from us. She gets to spend quite a bit of time with us and our son, her grandson, her bestie, if you will. But, you know, if we're just being transparent here, she relies on us for income. If you've ever spent a lot of time around older folks, though, like, you know, like, that's not the only thing that they need. They need exercise. They need social skills. They need a social calendar. They need spiritual practice. They might need help moving or installing things. They need help booking and organizing travel, like all the things, right? And so when you don't have a village, this all falls primarily on us or other people who might already be doing something that she can attach herself to. And it really just kind of speaks to the importance of having these types of relationships or communities because like they don't just naturally happen by themselves. Now, if she did have one, if she was a part of this, like I can only imagine how much easier it would be on everyone. It would be easier on us. She would have other people that she can, she can cook for people will cook for her. Like people can just help install things like all of the things like that is like, it sounds simple, but like a lot of people simply don't have that. And it also makes me think that, you know, to certain extents, she tried to create that or try to buy into existing models with a prior living arrangement, which was at a senior living community, which again is something that a lot of people find themselves into doing. Actually, I keep calling the senior living community was senior uh, living uh, homes or something like that. Cause it wasn't, it wasn't like much of a community in the sense, like, like, where people did a lot of things together, but they did organize certain things. Yeah, I mean, I think the difference between things like that niche communities, these active older communities and communes is that communes are self-managed. So there's no larger management company. There's no community coordinator facilitating the activities. You all decide as neighbors what day you want to have dinner and you decide who's going to go get the groceries and you know, it's, it's, it's a different arrangement. Yeah. And again, I think it just goes to show why this idea of a commune seems unusual because I think people feel like it already exists, but there are very, very subtle differences that really kind of make the difference in, and I think sort of lead to a much more productive uh, and well-balanced and just better quality of life when you really lean into the idea of communal living versus like, oh, well, we all live in this building together or we all live in this community together and we agree to pay X amount every single month to an HOA. It was like, that's yeah, not that's what not we're talking about. Thing, like, yeah. it's, it's not the same thing <laughs> at all. So let's get into that. I want to talk about some of the financial benefits before we move into the social ones, because you're right. We're going to keep kind of debunking 
the frameworks you have in your head to explain this one. So I should preface this by saying we've never lived in an official commune. And a lot of the information that we're sharing today is based on individuals who have shared their stories on the Internet. So if you currently live in a communal situation or are looking to move into one and have had a different experience than what we're describing, uh, please share with us. We'd love to hear from you. So reach out and let us know what's going on. But first, I want to go back to what you were saying about, you know, the difference between a commune and a roommate situation, because the model of a roommate and this idea of splitting bills 50-50 is typically, again, the framework that people bring into this discussion And it's not the same. So if you're talking about a multi-unit commune, there are both startup costs if you're starting a new one and ongoing costs for when people actually live in it. And I wanted to spend some time talking about the startup costs because when we tweeted that we were doing this episode, a lot of people responded saying they were thinking about doing this, presumably starting one themselves. So based on the research that we did, It's pretty rare that communes are formed with a group of people who can all afford to split the upfront costs like a down payment or legal expenses all at once. Usually there is a founding team who fronts the money to secure the building and furnish it. And then once everyone has moved in, their rent goes into this house fund and the founding team is typically repaid from that. So let's say you and two of your friends were saving for your own homes but got priced out of the market So you decide to go in together and buy a 15-person commune, and you put in $100,000 up front in the form of a loan with a 5% interest. So the three of y'all all all take $33,300 from your down payment fund, and you decide to buy this building instead. What you could do is structure the deal in a way that says, okay, $2,000 of the monthly house costs that we collect from the tenants are considered loan repayments which would allow you and your crew to have your money back in under five years, right? That's just one way to think of it. There are other ways to spread the risk and recoup your costs, but because the legal and tax implications vary on a state-to-state basis, it's best to consult with a professional. But that's the startup cost. There are ways to recoup it, and a lot of people just use, very similar to the real estate model, use the rental income to pay themselves back. Right. Now, as far as ongoing costs are concerned, there are a bunch of different models here as well. A common one is to build a buffer into any rent payments that do a number of things. So it could cover any unnecessary house expenses, including common supplies like toilet paper or laundry detergent. I absolutely love this because, again, I remember when we were going back talking about, all right, should we get a Costco membership or any of these other sort of discount warehouse, you know, retail situations. And then we started thinking about all the other considerations. All right, if we do that, then we got to buy these things that shifts the way that we think about storage for sure. Like if we're going to get our value and our money's worth out of this stuff and time, right? Presumably, where are we going to store that stuff? Do we have room in the garage? How big is a refrigerator? All of those different things, I think, as someone who cares about food and sort of looks at the kitchen and storage as a bit of an operation, there are all of those things. But when you're talking about doing it on a scale of like 10 or 15 people, it makes so much sense. It's like obvious, but yes, it makes sense to buy your things from a place like Costco. And then you can get down into all of the other details like, well, who's going to be in charge of it? How do you rotate that schedule or who's best served to do it, right? So that's one model. The other one is where you use the buffer uh, to allow the house to kind of have like a separate fund for larger expenses. So probably similar to an emergency fund. So you've got that model. And then there's the other one where it's like you pay a fixed amount towards those startup costs, like we mentioned 
if that's applicable. The sublease determines how funds should be spent or reimbursed. For example, we saw in our research that some communes have a rule that if you notice something is out that's necessary for the house, like uh, garbage bags, and it's under a certain dollar amount, like 50 bucks. I don't know who's buying $50 garbage bags. Maybe maybe you're buying like it's just 200, <laughs> 200 garbage bags. Maybe you run out of garbage bags, toilet paper, bags. and whatever. There if it's is. under $50. If it's under 50 bucks. And you uh, you may have a rule where you can say, all right, well, you can buy it immediately. And then you can ask to be reimbursed from that house fund, right? Like that little buffer that you created because that's what it exists. It's almost like a working capital sort of fund, like something just to be there for ongoing shortfalls. And then you've got a separate bucket, like we said, uh, in the case of like an emergency fund for larger things like repairs or something like that. So that's another way to look at it. Even something as simple as that, right? Like the idea that you're paying less than market rent and you don't need to budget separately for like toilet paper and paper towels. Again, I'm thinking about all the kitchen staples like rice and pasta and like all of those things. Like in my mind, I'm doing the math and I'm like, man, like dramatic, dramatic cost savings on a month to month basis. And then when you add in things like utilities or, you know, like having social parties and shared meals, like you really start to see how this thing starts to like add a lot of value and put people in a position to save a ton of money, invest at a high rate and do all of the things that we really, really want more people to do. Now, if at the end of the the day, the month, the year, however you guys are quantifying this or measuring it, if there's money left over at the end of that period, then a group gets to decide what they want to do with that money. You can decide to splurge on a nicer appliance to say, you know what, let's just making it up. Let's go ahead and get the new fancier dishwasher. Let's get two dishwashers so that it just saves us all a bunch of time and money. My first thought was, hey, let's make everyone's life easier. Use the surplus to prepay for a housekeeper for the next year. And now everyone gets like two hours back out of their week that they can do for whatever it is that they want, right? These are the kinds of things that like scale or economies of scale and saving and being able to spread the cost over a wider variety of people allow you to do. And what you ultimately decide on as a group is, or as a community is completely up to you. I, I think of it more so like, again, using an existing model. Like I think more people are familiar with an HOA model but imagine if it weren't just a neighborhood or a community, it was a building or a home and you were all sort of active board members on the HOA. And instead of managing or overseeing what other people outside of your home or within the community are doing, you're kind of doing it for each other, yeah. right? Like it's true sort of community. And, and I hate to say this, but like some of the other places where this exists, which is why I think the term throws people off in major media is mostly around like these end of the world scenarios. Like you really only see people using these sort of tactics, like when the world or the fate of the world is at stake. So it's like, Oh yeah. You mean like in the matrix Yeah. or like in um, what was it with the zombies or something like that? It was like, Oh yeah, that's when they did zombies when the world was coming to an end. It was like, I mean, it shouldn't take that for people to say, man, you know what? Let's start sharing some stuff. (laughs) 
you know? <laughs> right. But like, I think that's part of the reason why people are thrown off, or at least that's part of the reason yeah, why. Yeah, and because it doesn't off. exist. Like, it would be, HOA is a, is a great metaphor for describing how this works. But imagine if the HOA also got to pick who lives in the neighborhood. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like, that's the that's the missing link. It becomes an enjoyable thing when you know that you're all like-minded and believe in the same things versus an HOA where you get a mixed bag of neighbors and the HOA is just kind of moderating different interests. I saw some really cool projects for, and there's apps where people can use to like manage the house fund, but things like buying a piano for the house or creating a garden were also things that people did with their excess house money, which I just thought was really, really interesting. Yeah. All right. So we all know that housing is the number one expense for American families. So the financial benefits of communal living are fairly obvious, But I think what makes this model more interesting and what I really like to talk about is how it flips the decision making of households on on its head, because it's very natural to take our experience from workplaces that are hierarchical or operate based on, you know, a top down model or even in our households that we grew up with that typically operate in a head of household system and try to apply it here and assume that the decision making requires consensus or that there's this leader of the house But most of these communes follow a completely different organizing principle where individuals choose tasks for themselves and just do them. (laughs) It's called a duocracy, which I love and I might steal from my parenting practice. But (laughs) I I already know how our son will handle that. And it's spelled exactly how it sounds. Duocracy. Duocracy. But basically, as long as whatever you're doing is reversible, you just do it. If it's not reversible, then you need to wait for feedback from the other housemates. But other than that, you just do what you do. And this type of lifestyle is just like any other intimate relationship. It requires transparency, lots of communication and feedback. But luckily, like I said, there are all types of apps that facilitate this idea of co-funding and co-budgeting a lifestyle. A lot of these housing arrangements use things like WhatsApp, a shared Google calendar, and other modern tools to communicate their comings and goings. Now, we do have to mention that as good as all of this sounds, a fixed monthly housing cost, shared responsibilities, you have to remember that you're likely exchanging some of your privacy and space for that affordability. And that's particularly important if you're planning on entertaining a romantic relationship which everybody may not be. But when we posted a tweet about this, again, the majority of people who responded were single moms who were looking to create a momune with other single moms. And this may be something that they have to plan for because some communes explicitly ban members from dating each other because that might you know, naturally affect the stability of the house if y'all break up. But others have rules about when house guests can come and go and how they should conduct themselves, especially if there are going to be children present. But the more interesting scenario that I found was what happens when a resident has an outside romantic partner who starts to regularly sleep over and use the common spaces. Like, at what point does that person need to chip in? All of this is decided by the people you choose to live with. It's not like you can just come kick it at the house using up all the free coffee like that. Yeah, this is without... not new girl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not no we work. Like right. we so yeah, it's 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 an interesting dynamic that you have to think beyond just the monetary benefits and like the 
shared workload. I will also say this, right? Because it, it, it seems to have been a bit of a natural female slant to this conversation with respect to calling it you know, a mom hewn or all of this focus on single moms. Like this is relevant for fathers or men as well, right? Absolutely. Like there are implications there as well. Like, you know, if you are single and you're looking to save money and you're interested in a commune, not necessarily a momune, like you might be that one guy. Imagine you're that one guy and the only community that's available is is one with uh, women in it. They may not be welcome to having you in it, right? That's right. And even you have if to they apply. correct, you have to apply. And even if you want to, uh, or even if you are to say approved to be in it, you're going to have to convince a woman, assuming that that's what you're into, that hey, this is totally cool, right? And I hope you're okay with the fact that I live with four other women. Mm-hmm. Like it sounds unusual, but you know, again, this is these are the kinds of things that I think are really interesting, and you know, good luck. Like I, I, I'm not, I'm not discouraging it at all, but I think. You know, this is the world that we're in and this is the parts of money that I find just far more interesting. Like we know that this makes sense on paper, but the hard part is going to be getting over some of those social and cultural norms that get in the way of us making the decision that we actually think is best for us. Okay. I want to pivot away from romance for just a second and just talk about some of the social benefits or the broader social benefits, because we are also in a loneliness epidemic. Mm. And um, that is real. That is not uh, an exaggeration. The U.S. Surgeon General has literally issued a warning against and labeled the time and the period that we are in as a loneliness epidemic, an epidemic of loneliness. It is widespread. uh, And the reason why they're talking about it is because the research has essentially validated that there are measurable health risks uh, that are as deadly as you know, cigarette smoke with respect to loneliness. I think uh, the literal research suggests that loneliness poses uh, a similar or comparable health risk that is on par with smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Which is wild. That's That's a wild stat. It is. It is. But I will say this, uh, and I don't know that I've shared much about this. I think many people who know me or have listened to our show in the past know that I tend to make these food parallels. I'm also a huge nature geek. And I just so happen to be watching Chimp Empire, which is a new documentary. I think it's on Netflix. And um, it's a multi-series or multi-part series. And they're basically following this uh, group of chimpanzees. And chimpanzees, if you don't know, are our closest relatives in uh, in the primate family. But basically, long story short, Uh, The head of the group, Uh, let's say he gets beat down by this new young upcomer hot start. Um, He sort of has a decision to make. You either tuck your head and you become the lieutenant. You become the uncle of the group. You're no longer the king of the castle. Or you say, man, I'm just going to go sit down somewhere, you know, off to the side and say, you know what, if I can't be king, I don't want to be anything. And if that happens, or at least in this case, when that happened, you literally see the health decline. You see the muscles shrink. You see the animal itself shrink. You see the deterioration of the body. They die significantly faster the moment they are out there on their own. And it literally just goes to show like it is directly tied to your overall well-being, right? Not just your physical, but it's your mental. It's all of the above. And again, we as human beings are not that different. It should not have taken research for us to validate that. But like, yes, if you decide to live alone, uh, you are going to be significantly at a higher risk of depression, anxiety, dementia, 
all of those things are sort of connected and tied to your overall well-being. So all of that to say, I think the takeaway from all of this is like having friends and having regular, healthy human interactions isn't like a nice to have. It's important. It's critical for our health. It's essential for our health. And I think when we start to think about living arrangements like this, I think we need to not just look at the financial implications, but we should also be looking at how this sort of improves our quality of life and even our mortality. I completely agree. I, I, and it's interesting because I think the default response for nuclear families or traditional two-parent households is to say, well, my spouse is that person mm-hmm. or my kids are those people. But there's been a lot of research about how modern-day expectations of romantic partnership ask too much of the spouses, right? You're supposed to be their lover, their friend, counselor, therapist, objective bystander, business partner, business partner, uh, shared home responsibilities. Most relationships benefit from other non-romantic friendships. And this is different from just forced fun. Like when we, when we talk about these communal living situations, it's not forced fun. If you don't want to participate in the community activities, fine. You've already paid for it. It's not like somebody's going to bother you if you don't want to come to game night. But when you do need that ride home or you're sick or need help recovering, or if you just want to watch a movie that none of your friends or your family would want to watch with you, you have people that you can do that with. And when you're going through life transitions, whether it's welcoming a child into your family or preparing to age in place, you have a squad of neighbors who are vested in your well-being. You're a part of the community. Something is missing if you're not there. And I honestly think that a lot of the fears or aversions that people have about this kind of arrangement can really be addressed through thoughtful interior design and some well-structured rules through the lease. So it's still not perfect, but like, what is like, we, you know, I, I know we joke about being formal real invest real estate investors, but this is the kind of real estate deal that I would totally be interested in. Oh yeah, for sure. I think, I think we've had this conversation before and it may have been when that article came out. I was like, oh yeah, that's a great way of looking at it and thinking about it. Cause again, it's different from house hacking. We don't have to live in it at all. You know, it could be something that we just decide to invest in for the betterment of the broader community. And I think that that's something that, to answer your question, I'd 100% be interested in. What I also will say is that, like, we're already starting to see these kinds of things happening, like, even in our local community, but it's only happening in upscale and luxury environments. Yes, upscale and luxury environments and in corporate environments. Yes. Well, if we're being honest, it happens. Like, their celebration, Florida, whatever it's called. Correct, correct. If we're being honest or comprehensive here, it happens on both ends of the extreme, right? So on the upper end, we're seeing it in luxury communities. There is a a neighborhood called Serenby, and actually one of um, my former co-workers uh, actually lives there. It's in Fulton County, and it is the last time I read, I'm sure it's expanded since then, but it's like a community. It's exactly what we just said, Mm -hmm. but it's like centered around like this farm where people sort of- Yeah, it's a co-op. Yeah, co-op, and it's like super posh. Like it looks like a world in and of itself. On the other end of that spectrum, we have like projects, right? Mm-hmm. The difference is the equity arrangement isn't quite there. Those the projects are being yeah. managed by uh, a local government, and funding is sort of determined by the surrounding community, etc. Uh, and maybe federal funds and those kinds of things. And what's left is everyone in the middle who is either sort of fighting not to fall into the lower end of that type of community model, but aspiring to sort of benefit from these upper class or luxury sort of community models. And again, I think 
part of what we're kind of suggesting here is saying there's another path to getting there. Like we all realize that the role that community plays in sort of improving quality of life and also giving people sort of the financial flexibility that they're looking for. And I think what communes or communes offer is an alternative path from the one that exists today. It's a different path up. It's just sort of got to go around, borrow a little bit from some of the existing models and be willing to break some of the social and cultural contracts that exist today. Yeah. I I, want to go back to what the Surgeon General said, because he described loneliness like a feeling that people experience that works very similar to hunger or thirst. It's a signal that the body is sending that something that you need for survival is missing, right? And at a time where over 40% of American adults experience loneliness and there's not a single city where housing is affordable, that's a public health crisis. And somebody's got to make some hard choices somewhere, right? right? We always talk about this. You can either wait on the government to get their stuff in order, or you can start to make decisions for you and your family that that best best result in what whatever outcome you're trying to get. Yeah. And again, like don't be put off by the dorm-like nature of the spaces that we may have talked about today. Intentional living communities take on all shapes and sizes and forms. There was actually one in Tucson, Arizona that's a 28 single family homes on 43 desert acres that were all built around this central green space and shared community center. They have a community wide dinner every Saturday and a bunch of other activities. So if if you're concerned about space and and privacy to the point where you don't want to, you know, share a kitchen with somebody, there's still an option for you. You just have to look, you know, differently. Yeah. I love it. All right. uh, Final thoughts. Final thoughts. Okay. So one of the things that we were missing from this conversation was like a price comparison. You know, how much money do you save on a monthly basis by doing this? And that's really because of limited data. Between the markets where this has taken off and just the vastly different inflation rates across the country, it was really hard to find something that would contextualize it in a way that made sense. But it's safe to assume that anywhere between 20 to 40 percent you would save 20 to 40% off the market rates for rent, plus all of the intangible benefits that we talked about. But I'm actually glad that we didn't get too far into the weeds in terms of dollars and cents, because this is as much about housing as it is about how humans choose to remain connected to each other. Like at some point, everybody needs someone else. And after preparing for this episode and reading all of these stories, it reminded me that my current community isn't a co-living one, but we do have shared areas like the pool where I can practice what I preach and become an example. So I can t- I can make more of an effort now to get to know my neighbors and see if there's anything that I can do for them. And I just felt like I was really inspired. So anybody who's out there listening to this, that's just like me where it's like, ooh, that's a far off, distant idea, goal, thought. Know that there are pieces of this type of lifestyle that you can start to implement in really small ways. And maybe, you know, that'll... That'll improve your quality of life. No, I, I completely agree. And, and let me also say this in response to your your estimation of, you know, putting a number to it, 20 to 40 percent. Let's just go ahead and call it 30. You know, that is like the equivalent of having the perks of living in a tax free state anywhere in the country. Right. Is the way that I would look at it. Right. So like most people, I think would say, oh, well, you know, you get to move to, you'd have to move to Vegas or you'd have to move to Tennessee or you'd have to move to Florida or any of those states that people tend to move to where they know that they don't have any state income tax. But imagine being able to tap into the benefits of that without ever having to move or having to shift things, right? So when you start to think about 
you know, living communities and all of those different things. It's like, I feel like we're right there. There's so many people that talk about my work husband, my work, my work (laughs) wife, my friend. It's like, well, then go ahead and just formalize this thing. (laughs) Call it a five-year sprint, you know, like whatever it is. But like, that's enough to max out a 401k. That's enough to like rapidly pay off debt and put yourself in a completely different trajectory. You know, yes, there are going to be some people that call you a weirdo, but like those are likely going to be the people who are not able to do the things that you are able to do financially. And so like anything else, I think that we are asking people to sort of not just look at the numbers here, but also like tap into courage because that's ultimately what it's going to be about. I will also say, and this is my final, final thought. You mentioned it before. We've never done it. And so it's easier said than done. But I, I, I will just say the number of people that often come to us and say, well, all right, this is all fine and good. You guys have done the things that you're doing, but what do you do for me if you're single? And it's like, well, this right? Like this is something that I would highly, highly recommend that you do as opposed to like putting all the pressure on yourself to figure it all out on your own. You're absolutely right. That's incredibly hard to do. What you can do is sort of tap into the benefits of community without a formal romantic partnership, if you will. And um, I think this is something that most people should look into. So start one, start small, just start one, just do it. And when you do, let us know so we can write about it and help share your story to get more people on board. Awesome. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Rich and Regular podcast presented by Success. If you really want to explore a communal community, then head on over to the ratings and review page and see how everyone has contributed there and add your stamp. Leave us a five-star rating and review, and we will see y'all next week.